This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. When you need energy on the go and don't have time to wait in line, grab Espresso Monster. Espresso Monster is a premium blend of espresso and cream made with freshly brewed espresso coffee, hormone-free milk, and a unique energy blend complete with taurine and B vitamins. Each can has three shots of espresso and comes in vanilla espresso and espresso and cream flavors. I had one this morning before I came into the studio, and let me tell you, it gave me just the boost I needed to get my day going. Plus, it tastes so delicious, I'd drink it anyway. So close your eyes, take a sip, and enjoy Espresso Monster today. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. You know Paul Lieberstein from his memorable role as Toby Flenderson on The Office, the hit TV show on which he not only acted, but directed, wrote, and for four of its nine seasons, served as showrunner. But what you might not know about the mild-mannered Lieberstein is that for 20 years he suffered from debilitating back pain that was at times so excruciating that some days he couldn't move at all. But then, a decade ago, he went through a major transition in his life when he realized that his back pain was psychological in origin and tied to his lifelong suppression of anger. The man who never yelled once before the age of 40 decided to totally rethink how he dealt with his emotions and the backaches that many doctors said would require surgery miraculously vanished. The experience was so surprising and significant for Paul Lieberstein that it inspired him to write, direct, and star in a new film titled Song of Back and Neck. The film is Paul's directorial debut and was nominated for Best Narrative Feature at this year's Tribeca Film Festival. And today, Paul Lieberstein joins me on the podcast to talk about his own struggle with back pain and how he turned it into a funny and at times magical motion picture. He talks about his crippling affliction that plagued him for years, including when he was making The Office, his original skepticism of New Age healing, and his utter amazement when he discovered it really was all in his head. He shares how the king of indie filmmaking, Mark Duplass, convinced him to make the movie himself rather than selling it to a Hollywood studio, how he made something as seemingly mundane as back pain visually compelling on the screen, and the complications and conflicts of interest that can arise when you're directing yourself. We talk about his nine seasons playing Toby on The Office, what it was like to do double duty as an actor and a showrunner. He reveals that during the first season, NBC initially didn't think the show would last more than a few episodes and weighs in on recent talk of an Office revival. Plus, he addresses how The Office's Michael Scott might fare in the age of Me Too, whether there was more to Michael Scott's visceral hatred for Toby, and favorite fan theories, including one that suggests that Toby was secretly the Scranton killer. Coming up with Paul Lieberstein in just a moment. Paul Lieberstein is a writer, director, producer, and actor best known for his work on The Office. He played Toby Flenderson as well as wrote on the show all nine seasons and served as executive producer and showrunner for seasons five through eight. He was co-showrunner with Aaron Sorkin on the final season of The Newsroom, where he also wrote, directed, and acted. Other series include King of the Hill, The Drew Carey Show, and The Bernie Mac Show. 
and he directed his first feature film, which he also wrote and stars in. It's called Song of Back and Neck, which is available on video on demand. Paul Lieberstein, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to uh, be here. I was thinking about you this morning because I read some headline on my Apple News feed that Steve Carell said emphatically that he has no interest in doing a revival of The Office. And I was like, why does he need to make that statement? Because I keep hearing all this talk of a revival of The Office, but I don't know where it's coming from. Is anyone associated with The Office seriously talking about doing something new with it? It comes well, up a lot. Um yeah, I think, you know, NBC recently came around to wanting it again. Oh, okay. You know, it took, uh, took them a while mm -hmm. to uh, to um, kind of recognize that maybe they had a good thing there. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think I think they just kind of renewed the rights. I, I really don't know much oh, about the story, but um, um, they would certainly like to do it. And, you know, I, I think a lot of it comes from the fact that so many so many of these sitcoms are being are being um, given a revival yeah you but know? that's like 20 years later usually. it's 20 years later yeah I, and so yeah. i have um i'm not surprised at all that steve doesn't want to do it he's doing like really interesting mm -hmm. work now you know so really, yeah and um and you know what most of the cast has is has moved on as well i mean i yeah i can't imagine people are available yeah, I mean, uh, I'm sure the fans would love it, but I also have to think that The Office would be a very different show in the Me Too era. I mean, your 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 character, especially Toby, you would probably be spending half the episode on paperwork. <laughs> I, would, yeah, I would have a little more to say. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. could um, be good for you. <laughs> yeah, but you know, you know, the Me Too era. I don't know how hard it's hit other industries. I really don't. No, you know, it's taken yeah. down entertainment for sure. Yeah. But it sure hasn't made a dent in politics. Yeah, um, that's for sure. In fact, we've, we've really gone the other way. And Well, well uh, it depends on who the politician is. Like, <laughs> if you're Al Franken, then it'll doom your career. But uh, there is one certain he politician could have survived who has immunity yeah, yeah, for yeah, some yeah. reason. <laughs> I don't know why. But it really yeah. seems to be any politician who decides they uh, mm -hmm. want to keep going. Yeah. You know, Al, Just Al step deny, down. Deny, deny, deny. Yeah. Yeah. If you're willing to do that. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly it's impacted tech. I mean, there have been a number of tech CEOs tech, who have had yeah. to step down and yeah, so forth. Yeah, boards but. are making people a little more. Yeah. Yeah. Weird. Now, when you first came but A little on, paper company? I don't know. A little paper company? I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe there's a YouTube or a Funny or Die video in there somewhere. <laughs> um, when you first came to the office... Were you brought on as a writer and an actor? Because I don't think a lot of people know that you were also a showrunner on the show and were a writer. You directed episodes. Yeah, I started there as a writer. And, okay. Um, I had never acted before, so there really? was there was really no intention of doing that. We we had you know pre production, but I was on from season one, and uh, and then Greg Daniels, who was the um, you know the uh, the executive producer and the guy in charge of adapting it, and he mm -hmm. ran it for the for um first four seasons and came back for the last um he had this idea of of kind of um you know letting the writers kind of experience what it was like to be on set and um he kind of promoted a lot more just dialogue between the writers and the mm -hmm. actors thinking maybe this could be an interesting thing and I'll, you know there's really kind of um a very heavy wall that for some reason has been developed between um, writers and actors on TV shows. And you're yeah. really not supposed to even talk about the show. 
Yeah. You know, you can chat, you can get friendly, but but yeah. um, you, I, you know, I if you have something, you should go through the executive right. producer or if it's on right. set, the director. I know shows where the writer's room and the actors never interact. They never interact. And, and you know, I, I really think that it's... Um, uh, it's kind of a fear. Ba- there's there's two things. One, I, I guess there's a, you know, it is I I because I've also directed a lot. I know that you can build a performance kind of carefully, and one wrong note, if somebody else gave a wrong note, can can send an actor off in a, in a the wrong direction, yeah. and it kind of brings them back. I, I think there is a creative reason to kind of, especially on set, to funnel everything through one person. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and make sure you know I've been on set where an actor's getting notes from three different places and they conflict yeah. and it's like what 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 the hell yeah. you know I'm supposed <laughs> to do, but at the same time I think that this wall is there more for people to kind of consolidate power you know some mm-hmm. people just don't want are just threatened by yeah it by makes sense people. so so Greg not being a guy who's 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 threatened by things like that. Uh, decided, hey, what's going to be like to to kind of rip down this wall and promote? And the result was amazing. Yeah, and it wasn't just you. I mean, there were a lot of writers who were also actors, and of course, Phyllis famously started out as I think the casting director. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then, yeah. just even the conversation that there was this fluid mm-hmm. flow of ideas that included the the writers and the actors together. Yeah, yeah, and it made actually- it a better show. It's interesting because when you were talking about uh, you know getting notes from all these different places, it made me think of something that I heard John Krasinski once say about the first season, which is that it was so pessimistic behind the scenes because he he claims that like all the NBC people were constantly coming in and saying this is only going to be one season, this is going to be the last episode. <laughs> were they really that negative on the show that first round? Um. You know, nobody nobody comes in and, say, and says it's going to be canceled. But um, at the same time, people were really not sticking their neck out for this show. Mm-hmm. They're really, I mean, when we finished the first six, everybody like hugged and said goodbye and like with a real feeling like that was it. Really? Um, and plus, we were doing something that, you know, and didn't really have a place on, uh, didn't, not that I say it didn't have a place on NBC. It, it didn't have a, um, there was nothing on NBC that would like lead you to believe that this was going to work there. Yeah. But Kevin Riley saw it and um uh he was he was the true champion of of the office uh, at NBC. But when we came back, we were we were back for six episodes. And then we were picked up for three episodes. And then we were picked up for two episodes. And then we were picked up for the remainder of season two. <laughs> but they were not sticking their nobody was sticking yeah. their neck out for the show. <laughs> we were really on the brink of being canceled. Um really? When uh, when iTunes just started, I and heard that. So the yeah, timing was like, that. we were the first show that iTunes that was selling well on iTunes. We were we were promoted. We were like, uh, because of that, that, we made like if you bought a little iPod at the time. I mean, you couldn't even do it on your phone, but if you bought this this iPod, it would you'd have a picture of the office. You know, embedded okay. in the little screen, okay, uh, on the box, okay. You know, and so they uh, were heavily promoting you. They were more than the network was. Probably. More than the network <laughs> was because like. we were. Be- yeah. And I think the network finally saw that and said, "Oh wait, there's there's definitely another income stream, and maybe there's something here that we that we didn't 
notice. Yeah, and it's funny that that was the thing that did it for you guys because, I mean, you were already on television for free. It's not like this was some cable show on AMC that people, you know, if they didn't have a subscription, could only access on the phone. You know, people already had access. Yeah, they had access. Yeah. Now, in those first few seasons, you guys stuck for, or at least the first season, you stuck fairly closely to the original format of the British version. Not, exa- not exactly. No? Uh, really, just the first episode. Okay. Okay, but um, the, but the the conceit that it was all a documentary and there was a crew that was kind of shadowing everyone at Dunder Mifflin that was stayed there. through all nine seasons, so. right? But I mean, but it seems to me that they did kind of dial it back over time, and it was just kind of one of those things that faded into the background. Except on very rare occasions, you might have some kind of breaking the fourth wall type thing where you actually see the crew. It's right, in a right. In season nine, they like started to um, um, yeah break the fourth wall, but um, no. Actually, it, you know, at, at least from my point of view, from uh-huh. the inside, we had some very strict rules about what it was like to be in a documentary really? and um, characters' awareness. The, I think one of the things that you might have noticed, and this is something we talked about and, and did on purpose, was that through time, if you were if you were a, if a documentary crew was following you around, four years into being followed around, you're pretty familiar with them. Right. You're not so freaked out. You don't notice them quite as much. You, right. you probably consider them your friend, you know. Um, yeah. And and I forget that you always had the interviews, even in the very last yeah, seasons. You yeah. still had the on-camera interviews they were doing. But, yeah. it, but it almost seems so seamless that you forget about it. We would never, yeah. like, be in a place where the doc crew wouldn't be mm-hmm. loud. We would never in someone's bedroom. Right. It was never... Uh, we had things called spy shots where if we wanted to right. if we wanted we to have people aware, kinda, yeah, but yeah. we would really pull back the camera, mm-hmm. put an obstacle between us, you know, and really try to yeah get across the fact that these people were in private and, and would act a little differently. Yeah, that's true. Now, what was behind the intense dislike between Michael Scott and your character Toby? Because uh, what I don't understand is that was there from the very beginning, from season one. And I don't know if it's just that he was a guy who didn't like a lot of rules and you were the HR guy or if there was more to it because it was just an incredibly visceral dislike. Is it that was just a, visceral a mystery dis- for the ages or what? It was, um, uh, you know, it, it's not that it wasn't embedded in, in the script, but I think it was definitely something found on set okay. um, in Steve's side that uh, – so there was – there was an episode we did. We filmed it fairly early on. Uh, I can't remember what order it was exactly, but it was Meredith's birthday card. Um, and he just couldn't think of something to, to sign. He spent the whole episode trying to think, you know, what's the perfect funny thing to write in her card. And I just go into his office and say, do you have the card? And I just fill it out <laughs> and and say thanks and leave. And uh, And then you just kind of see him staring at me and in that moment it you know i really did write in the card and it really did take like 30 seconds and he told me that he was um in that time he would just um felt himself just well up with hate (laughs) towards my character (laughs) and i think it really informed a lot of everything that we did after that because because it was just so easy for your character he would he would criticize a lot of people all the time but there was hate mm-hmm. uh, when it when it came to my. <laughs> I think that my character was yeah. just one that, you know, was not emotional. Yeah, 
and his character only dealt on this an emotional level. Yeah, you know, yeah. Just, yeah. Now, I have to imagine there are probably all kinds of fan theories around a show that lasted that long. Do you have a favorite? Fan theories? Yeah. Or I love that I'm the, yes, that I'm the Scrand Strangler. I, yeah. I think. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it took a lot of, uh, um, <laughs> a lot of internet, um, um, data. Yeah. There's mm. a, <laughs> a lot of gigabytes going to that. How much um, of that was improvised versus scripted? Oh, the Scrand Strangler stuff? Oh, well, just everything. Oh. Um, the vast majority of it was scripted. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh. There was, there was, there was uh, every once in a while, there was just a brilliant improvised line that would make it through. But um, often, um, even though people would maybe say something that was maybe even a little bit funnier than than the line that was written, um, it, you know, the line also had to like serve a story purpose and feed mm-hmm. the next person to say this. And right, it, you know, there was kind of a it's complicated chain of events. So yeah, so often not a lot of people like, went off script. No, they they would do it a lot in the beginning, and then when they saw oh, yeah. started to see the episodes where it was mostly on script, they 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 did it less. <laughs> but um, that's not to say that like they didn't find a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And Steve, you know, when he when he saw an opportunity, he sees, and and he's so fast. Yeah. So. Now, when you took over as showrunner for those four seasons. Did that change your dynamic with the cast or or because everything was kind of fluid behind and in front of the camera, did it make that transition, I guess, a little bit more comfortable? It was pretty comfortable. Mm-hmm. I had a really good relationship with everybody. Yeah. yeah, it's it's not like um it's not like all oh, the cast was scratching their heads like what's what's the new guy like? Yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they <laughs> yeah, knew <exactly>. me and <laughs> they knew my scripts. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, nobody was like, they picked Paul? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> or maybe they were, but they didn't say that to me. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Paul Lieberstein when we come back in just a minute. This episode of Kick-Ass News is sponsored by the audiobook edition of Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal, written and read by Senator Ben Sass. Something is wrong in America, and we all know it. In this intimate and urgent assessment of our country, best-selling author and U.S. Senator Ben Sass argues that the crisis isn't really about politics at all. It's about loneliness and the collapse of community. If you listened to my recent interview with Senator Ben Sass, then you already heard me rave about them. This is a timely and relevant audiobook, and you can hear this compelling audiobook in the author's own voice. Take it with you in the car or around the house. Listen to an excerpt and buy the audiobook now by visiting macmillanaudio.com slash them. That's macmillanaudio.com slash them. Today's episode is sponsored by Zeal. I was a fan of Zeal long before they even became a sponsor on the show, so I'm very happy to talk about them today. Zeal is an amazing service that offers professional in-home massages at your door in an hour. After a long day at work or a tense holiday weekend, Zeal is the perfect way to de-stress. With Zeal, you get a professional massage in the privacy of your own home so you don't have to go all the way to the spa or sit around with a bunch of strangers at the gym. Just open the Zeal app and choose your favorite massage style. You can pick from Swedish, deep tissue, sports, prenatal, or sleep massage. An hour later, a licensed massage therapist shows up at your door. They even bring their own massage table. It's just like the spa comes to you. 
The best part is, tip is included so you don't have to dig around for cash when you're done. Just rinse off in your own shower and get back to your day, or go straight to bed. I already told you that I use Zeal and I'm a big fan. Sometimes after a workout or sitting at a desk all day, my back gets stiff and I can really use a massage. But the last thing that I want to do is deal with going to the spa and the check-in, the locker room, the payment, and then driving home. All that stuff just kills what ought to be a relaxing experience. But with Zeal, a massage therapist comes right to my door. They're always very professional. They bring all the nice spa stuff, the oils, the table, the sheets, even the relaxing spa music. And the best part is, when they're done, they leave, and you can do whatever you want. You've really got to give Zeal a try. Download the Zeal app and use the promo code KICK for $25 off your first massage. That's Zeal, Z-E-E-L, and promo code KICK. Zeal. Wellness on the way. Use your sports and pop culture knowledge to make some extra cash this week with BetDSI. BetDSI.com has been paying winners for 20 years. With a really user-friendly interface and mobile site and the fastest payouts in the industry, it's no wonder BetDSI is top-rated on betting review sites. Simply play, win, and get paid. BetDSI offers betting options for everything from NFL, NCAA football, NBA, NHL, UFC, and all other major sports to politics, reality TV, esports, virtually everything. There's also live betting, which lets you bet on games through the entire matchup, every play and every minute until the end. Try for yourself. New members get 100% bonus match using promo code KICK. That's more than double your money to start winning today. Just go to BetDSI.com and use promo code KICK to get this limited-time 100% bonus offer and make some extra cash on the sports you know and love. It's only a game until you bet it at BetDSI. And now, back to the podcast. Now, you've got this great new movie, Song of Back and Neck, which you wrote, directed, produced, and starred in. Um, when you embarked on this project, did you feel like your experience on The Office prepared you to helm a feature film, or was there a little bit of a rude awakening at some point in the process? Um, no, definitely. You know, uh, of course, uh, like uh, uh, running that thing was uh, um, great training. But at the same time, I, I don't think I realized just quite how heavily I was supported mm-hmm. um, in television. Compared right, to independent right. film, which is just wow, you're really on your own. Right, you got a writer's room that's got your back. Yeah, you got the network to deal with, which is a blessing and I mean, a curse. Yeah, there's a ton of people to deal with, and extremely yeah. collaborative. Mm-hmm. But when you get into film, it's it's just you want to do it, so you just do it. You want to make yeah. a change on the day, you just change. Yeah, I mean, on some level, it must have been liberating to it was. go from it was amazing notes from the network and all that. <laughs> it was to, terrifying. You know, too, I'm a guy with yeah. a computer. I'm going to bang this thing out, and then I'm going to decide just to go indie and do it myself. Just to do it. Yeah, I couldn't believe when I learned that existed. Oh, really? Yeah. Like I, <laughs> when I wrote it, I didn't even know that the the whole indie. I didn't know anything about making a movie. Yeah. And then just. I had this friend, Mark Duplass. Who, oh, yeah. Um, I had him on the show. Oh, uh, yeah. He's great. I mean, that's Mr. Indy. Mr. Indy. <laughs> yeah, and he, we were talking, and he just yeah. kind of like laid it out for me like, here's some ways to just make your movie. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, I can just do it. And we did it. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. Now, I mean, what was the budget? Uh, I'm assuming that you did it on fairly tight budget. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was a low budget. Mm hmm. Yeah. 
Uh, at one point, did you ever consider that you were going to just say, sell the script or maybe write and direct and let it be a studio film, be a five, $10 million movie? Um, I certainly like, I think that was my assumption going in because mm-hmm. I didn't even know. Yeah. You know, that you could, um, but, uh, but I think what I, when I finished it and started to look around and then took us a, a look at what was being released and, and what that was like, yeah. I kind of realized, oh, this is not what, what people make. You know, they're, it's not a genre thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so for, you know, they're, they're, they're still making lots of kinds of movies, but they all really fit into genre mm-hmm. if they're getting a right. wide release. Right, right. And I mean, you, you can make a $1 million movie and star in it yourself, or you can make a $21 million movie and get Tom Cruise. <laughs> right, you can do it right. But yeah. this movie at $21 million with Tom Cruise still like yeah. doesn't fit into a marketable genre yeah. like that. So it it hit. I don't think there was a way that this was going to like mm-hmm. open in, in uh, 3,000 theaters. Mm-hmm. So it really did fit the indie world much better and... and um, you know, we're, we're, we're downloadable now. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and the environment and I think that's now how suits people that. are going to watch yeah. a, this kind of movie. Yeah. I mean, in some ways it's a lot easier to be an indie filmmaker today than it was 10, 20 years ago, or, you know, at the height, heyday of Miramax or the Weinstein company and those. Right. There was a, Lions there was Gate. a few gatekeepers yeah. back there. Yeah. And if you didn't, if it didn't pass that, but yeah. now, uh, you know, yeah, anything we're out goes. <laughs> We made it, and we're out there. It's great. I loved it. Uh, totally, oh, it reminds me a lot of Charlie Kaufman's movies because it mixes the realism with the uncanny and a certain sense of wonder. Was he one of your inspirations? Yeah, no and doubt. What no other no directors doubt. or films did you draw on? Yeah, I definitely looked at, at uh, his stuff. Um, uh, I loved his tone. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, his movies are just oh yeah, just terrific. Um, and visually, tried to kind of capture you know some of the some of the Cohen brothers work mm-hmm. although that yeah I, I found that, that to be really hard with this budget but um and uh and then some of the older movies too like Hal Ashby movies oh and, really yeah and the graduate I watched like probably mm-hmm. a bunch of times right before filming because yeah. I just love the composition yeah I mean that was like kind of the first dry comedy I mean, yeah. I, I don't know what preceded the graduate in terms of something that kind of had that that same tone. Yeah, yeah, the movie was was perfect. Now, was when you wrote it, did you think that you were also going to star as well? Did you write I this didn't part think for so. yourself? No, um, no, I mean, I knew it was like definitely something I could do, mm-hmm. but no, I. Um, and again, it, it goes back to just like ignorance of what was going on in in film at the time. But, yeah. Um, uh, you know, I assumed that this would be a, a normal movie with a normal uh, studio, you know, <laughs> uh, actor. Yeah. Now, did the part change much when you decided that you were going to be the star? The part didn't change much, no. No. The, you know, I just definitely did a rewrite mm-hmm. for take away some of the, the yeah. most expensive parts. But uh, <laughs> Okay, okay. So you rewrote it as a director yeah, yeah. from the perspective of the director. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Or a producer, yeah. Well, you know, I'm always impressed with artists who can simultaneously do the behind the camera and the in front of the camera at the same time, what is the hardest part of directing and starring? Well, there's this 
it you know it's all about the adjustment you can plan mm-hmm. and plan and plan and if everything went perfectly there it wouldn't be any problem yeah and it's it's you know the there's a time consuming element to taking a look at what you did thinking about it trying to step away from maybe your own ego and mm-hmm. cuz you're seeing watching yeah. yourself yeah um and making these adjustments and you know trying to trying to figure out what's not working or what could be better mm-hmm. um and it just becomes harder when doing both oh yeah, yeah. well yeah cuz how do you separate your goals as a director from your goal as an actor yeah, yeah they're not always mutually aligned <laughs> i guess not yeah yeah um but at the same time, I think I probably saved some time and uh, just knowing what I wanted, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I didn't have to, Did I you didn't come to... pretty prepared? Did you have a shot list? Did you have uh, oh yeah, uh, yeah storyboards, yeah. all that. Yeah, we knew. I mean, I mean there were just my own scratch storyboards. Oh yeah, they were <laughs> awful. You know, <laughs> you know, they don't have eyes on them or anything. Well, but, uh, I don't want to give away too much about the movie, but elements of this movie are semi-autobiographical or inspired by your own experience. As the title would suggest, the main character suffers from severe debilitating back and neck pain. Uh, This is something that you struggled with for how many years? It sure is, like uh, 15 at least. Wow. And I had it bad, and there were just days where I just was lying on the floor and couldn't get up or something would happen, and I could just all of a sudden I couldn't get out of my chair, and I didn't know why. Oh my god! Yeah, I was like, I, my back just kind of seized up on me, um, and then you know, fifteen years later, to to read this book by the guy, by this uh, Doctor John Sarno, who yeah, um, yeah, tell us, and realize it's uh, it's um, you know, psychologically based. It was coming from coming from me, and it was kind of rooted in a suppression of anger. Interesting, which is a little, wow. you know. Um, Feels a little like mind body hocus pocus kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm I'm generally skeptical of that I'm sort of thing. Extremely skeptical, really? and I I had been so skeptical my whole life. So <laughs> that was, it was such a giant transformation for me. Yeah, to just like th- you know I had to throw all that stuff out the window too because now I just know it's true. Yeah. Now, how does that work? Because, uh, you know, I know in the movie, your character is being told by a doctor that he has sciatica and he has a slipped disc and all of these physical yeah. symptoms. How, how do you explain that with the whole mind-body thing then? If, yeah, if you're diagnosing physical ailments, how yeah. do you explain the what's going it's on true. Well, mentally? You know, so so there's a, there's a leap that this guy makes, and, and I think right. that's like why... It's taken so long for the medical establishment to to accept him. Yeah. But, so the, the 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 leap that he makes is your body is is sending these um, signals to your muscles to contract mm-hmm. really quickly, mm-hmm. and it mimics um, uh, the um, three most prevalent uh, forms of back pain, really? which are a pinched nerve in the neck and huh. sciatica and um, and then kind of like a, a slip disc. Of a okay. Wow. Um, so, um, but what you find with this kind of pain is that it might switch to, to another. So at one point okay. I had a doctor tell me you know, operate on a pinched nerve, but at another point I was going down for lower back pain and with my neck was, and my neck was fine. And then <laughs> it's like whack-a-mole. It also is like, out where it is. why, why was it terrible one day? But then three weeks later I was running. Yeah. And then it's bad again a month later. Huh. Like, um, 
there's something and that's the form of so many people's pain is that it just yeah. comes and goes over years it's there had to be something else so the leap that he makes is that your body is 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 your mind is sending this to create back pain so that you think about the back pain instead of thinking about something else okay that your that okay. your body is is like unwilling yeah that your brain is unwilling to look at okay and you know there's this like tons of support psychologically in Jung's shadow, you know, that there's a lot of human nature that we don't want to mm -hmm. acknowledge. It all makes perfect sense. And the mind is, it is connected to our yeah. body. Yeah, <laughs> it's physically especially connected. to the spine. It's all right, part of the right. electrical it's all, system. So clearly yeah. like we can, it's our brain telling our hands to pick up a mm -hmm. glass of water. But the, for some reason uh, it's, you know, um, logical thought we we all accept that but the the kind of connection that an emotion mm -hmm. is also connected to our body we then throw that into new age mm -hmm. thinking interesting but there isn't really a reason that we do that that's fascinating. i don't know I've, I'm, I've totally been turned <laughs> yeah. around as a guy who's, who's just 100 percent skeptic to now believing really? or all that stuff really is true. I wow. mean, and you, know, you had tried everything else, right? I have tried everything. I really? saw head of ortho, from the head of orthopedics at UCLA to, you know, massage therapists and physical therapists and yeah. chiropractors and and, oh, uh, wow. and even acupuncture. I mean, I've I've had times when I've had back pain. I've had a couple of times in my life when I've thrown out my back or whatever you want to call it, yeah. where I had to just lay down for several days because. Yeah. You know, I couldn't hold myself up straight, really? so I can certainly empathize, but I can imagine 15 years of that. 15 years of on and off, wow. yeah. My God. It wouldn't be every day, but... Yeah. Yeah. And this was when you were doing the office as well? Because that's got to be yeah, pretty demanding. Yep. Yeah, it was uh, cool. certainly the beginning of the office. Wow. And in the movie, your character sees an acupuncturist. I hate needles, so I've always been afraid of that. Uh, did that work for you as well? Or? No, of course no. it didn't work. <laughs> it didn't? Okay. <laughs> I actually don't think it works. Mm -hmm. I think it's uh, you know placebo effect. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It never made it's logical sense to me. To, yeah, it's almost impossible to do a study. <laughs> so, at what point when you were dealing with back pain did it dawn on you that maybe this could be a good idea for a movie? It was such a thing I was thinking about a lot, mm -hmm. and I also think character in transition mm -hmm. is a um, a uh, um, a good basis for a movie. Yeah. And then when it comes with that transition, is like fueled by a realization, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of better's a character's life. It's it's just the the elements were lining up. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. So was it after after you had kind of overcome this? Was that when yeah, it started yeah, to yeah. really start to flesh out for you? Yeah. The idea? Yeah, after. I yeah. mean, it was such a giant thing. Yeah. It's like for years I've been doing that to myself that it was just um, a topic. Yeah. You know. Back pain would seem like that would be a pretty mundane thing to depict on film. I mean, I, I've thrown my back out, and you know, yeah. the way I dealt with it was literally by doing nothing. So, right, you know, right. That must have been kind of a, a hurdle as a director from the get go to figure out how do you depict yeah. that sort of thing. Well, that's one of the reasons the acupuncture has the, mm -hmm. that element. Right, yeah, right. It's magical realism element. Right. 
Yeah, and I love the opening scene of the movie because we see your character on the floor on his back after he wakes up and he's sliding through yes. his morning ritual from the shower to brushing his teeth, eating Continuing cereal. I, dad, I'm yeah. guessing he's probably skipped the bathroom that morning. But, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That would have been but that's what point. it feels like. You know, uh -huh. it's like, how can I function but stay in the exact same position that I'm in? Right. <laughs> it's really incredible. Yeah, that was, oh, nice. The opening scene is probably one of my favorite parts to it. How did you oh, come thanks. up with that? Um, you know, I just kind of wanted to show that this was a guy mm -hmm. living with it. Yeah. You know, like this, this was the stasis, you know, yeah. if it was a new thing, you kind of wait it out, but it was pretty it's that prevalent. You got to go on with your day. You yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I understand that you actually worked in your dad's law office at one point before you went into entertainment, just like your character, Fred, was that a pretty soul crushing experience like it is in the movie? No, not at no. all. No, no. No, uh, I, I I worked part time while I was writing scripts. Okay. And, oh, really? Um, yeah, I uh, I liked it. it was, you know, did Dad ever want you to go into the family business? Oh, he did. Oh, I yeah, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> but it wasn't in the cards. Yeah, <laughs> I, it's funny because I've met a number of people over the years who originally went pre law or went went to law school and then somehow end up in the entertainment industry, and I don't know why that is, but. It's not for everyone. Yeah, yeah I'm sure. Did My father was a uh, patent lawyer, which oh, is okay. a very specific type, and I really yeah. would have had to go for it from early on because you need mm -hmm. a, a science background as well as a yeah, yeah, law background. Now, again, I I don't want to give away too much about this film, but music also plays a big role in the movie. In some ways, it's a character of its own. And it's a brilliant device for illustrating, you know, your inner emotional pain and the changes that your character goes through. How did you come up with that? I can't remember the exact germ. Yeah. But, um, you know, to, to go on something you were just pointing out a, uh, a minute ago that it was, um, you know, I can't just have someone lying in back pain and nothing happens and it. I need some kind of manifestation mm -hmm. of the pain yeah. uh, in, an, in an action. Um, and I also wanted to kind of put a different face on the pain because it, it was, what it was, was something that was like kind of amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a brilliant solution to that problem. Yeah. <laughs> How do you depict that sort of thing? <laughs> ah, thanks. Yeah. Who did the music? Antonio Andrade. Okay. Who, um, is great, uh, um, young composer. Um, he works with, um. Hans Zimmer. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah. um, this is one of the first that he just done on his own. Yeah. Not the first. Yeah, terrific job. But he's, he's, he's done, uh, yeah, he did a great job. Mm -hmm. But um, he's, you know, he's worked on some giant movies, but just not the composer in name. Yeah, yeah, because music plays so heavily into this film. That's a big responsibility. It really did. And, and there were so many job. early cuts there, and I was like, oh my God, this is working. Let's... But it yeah. just didn't, the music just didn't Yeah, well, work yeah, yet. because when you were shooting and editing this, you probably didn't have the music yet, so you didn't no. know that that's and I didn't such even a have huge a concept element. You didn't know it. what you were going to have. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, w I just wrote in the script that this like, it was producing a sound mm -hmm. that was like somewhere between a beautiful whale song and a um, Icelandic New Age band. <laughs> I love that. That's spot on. <laughs> but I didn't have a. I didn't know what it was going to be yeah. until it was created. Yeah, it's just such a wonderful, unique movie. Uh, what's next? Are you doing more films or TV? I'm developing a couple of TV shows, yeah. and I'm working on another, um, writing my next film. Oh, really? Yeah. 
about some other ailment or it's, no <laughs> it's not an ailment um it's about the shadows department at a university based on a short story that the I shadows department at a university yeah. what is the shadows it's department? not a real thing but oh, um, okay. umbrology <laughs> okay. study of shadows oh okay oh cool and uh follows a professor and um kind of turns into a little bit of a, a murder mystery oh cool it's, be fun. it's been fun. I like it. It's out of my wheelhouse, but I'm, I'm uh, <laughs> yeah. Lo- now, it. do you think that you might star in that too? Um, I, I think I'm going to try to pull back and mm-hmm. maybe I'll play a, a, like a small role. But. Yeah. Well, once again, Paul Lieberstein's film is called Song of Back and Neck. It's available now on video on demand. Paul, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks again to Paul Lieberstein for coming on the podcast. Definitely watch his new film, Song of Back and Neck, now available on Video On Demand. And follow Paul on Twitter at at Paul Lieberstein. When you need energy on the go and don't have time to wait in line, grab Espresso Monster. I had one today and it gave me just the shot in the arm I needed. Plus it tastes so good, I'd drink it anyway. That's because Espresso Monster is a premium blend of espresso and cream made with freshly brewed espresso coffee, hormone-free milk, and a unique energy blend complete with taurine and B vitamins. Each can has three shots of espresso and comes in vanilla espresso or espresso and cream flavors. Close your eyes, take a sip, and enjoy Espresso Monster today. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at KickAssNews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.